Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 156 of the Common Knowledge Podcast. I'm your host, Christian. I'm joined by our co-host, Adam. How is everyone? They can't answer oh. that, but I don't care. They can answer I, in the comments. I'm trying to drive social engagement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I'm doing great. It's uh, been a hectic week, but tomorrow's Friday, so uh, that makes everything better. What about yourself? Well, I mean, obviously I'm in better shape than I was shortly after the last time we recorded, but it, it's been pretty hectic here too. Just kind of a lot of, a lot of missed connections and then uh, more connections that got made because we got to meet the rest of uh, some of the rest of the CC fam last weekend. So Thank you, man. it was fun. Yeah, for sure. I'm uh, a little bit sad that I couldn't be there, but wow, you were headed the other direction. I was, I was. Before we got too far into this episode of Common Knowledge, I do have a few things to get out of the way. First, I got to remind everyone that Common Knowledge and all the podcasts on the Constructive Criticism Network are sponsored by PureMTGO.com, as well as GameGrid. If you'd like to support the show, make sure to like and share and subscribe to the Constructive Criticism YouTube channel and check out the Common Knowledge Patreon. With that out of the way, let's get on with the podcast for the week. Before we got into our main topic, though, we... Um, do need to kind of dive into what decks we've been uh, playing and working on if you wanted to lead us off. So I I was with you working on Boros Heroic, and I could never really nail down a list I really enjoyed. And I just kind of ended up falling off that wagon and then going back to Boros Monarch and trying to bring the curve down on it and playing around with that. Yeah. Did you... Um, did you learn anything exciting? Well, I mean, it is just magic in one of its most fun forms when you get to two for one people to death. So they're just Skyfishers and Glint Hawks and Synthesizers and Icker Wellsprings. And like, yes, you sometimes miss Battle Screech against decks that are full of one for one removal, but you are so much better against cards like Suffocating Fumes. It's not even close. Did you play any of the like, Try or try any of the like gates packages in the deck at all. I, I have not gotten around to working on the gates package yet. I wanted to keep my artifact count high, so I was playing bridges. Mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely looking at them. I finally, you know, my uh, moto account, I finally got them. So, <laughs> right. Finally yeah, got those um, free ones that Watsy decided we needed. <laughs> right. Yeah, the gates, gates packages are kind of weird because, like, in a lot of ways, they're incredibly powerful, particularly, right, like, I feel like it's really powerful in the Boros deck, mostly because you get to cut two cards that I think are pretty bad out of your deck, which are copies one and two of Rally the Peasants. Yes. I think that that card, like, obviously it was good enough to see play in the deck for years, so, like, it's not a legitimately bad card, 
but it's like in comparison to your other cards, it was pretty horrendous. And so the fact that you can kind of move away from those and have a very similar effect built into your mana base is pretty nice. Um, that being said, right, like you do have to make the deck building concessions of probably not playing Glint Ox and things of that nature. Can't play Galvanic Blast if you want to. It is unfortunate, but it's definitely worth looking into. I mean, it's the closest thing we get to good creature lands in Pauper. So we we don't have many effects that are that powerful that come off of lands. So it's definitely something I wanted to get around to, but we're going in a different direction for this month's deck, which we'll get to in a minute. So what yeah. have you been playing? I think last time we talked, I was kind of working on like a, a Boros Prowess deck that had those like heroic themes. Yeah. So you know it would play it played Swift Spear and um Seeker of the Way as kind of like your eight premier threats. And I had four more threats of um gosh, what's that card's name? I think it's Tenth District Legionnaire. Is that yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The red and white. Yeah, it's like That's so <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you know, playing that and then playing it alongside like Four copies of Mutagenic Growth, copies of Apostles Blessing, um, basically like mono red kiln fiend, except for you're playing red white, so playing just like you know your four copies of Lightning Bolt, and then you have access to the white sideboard cards like Dust to Dust, Journey to Nowhere, um, and you play sort of like a more mid rangey plan. And then I ended up actually working the Gates package into that deck. Because oh, nice. I would find, like, you could definitely steal games under, but the way that the deck was constructed, it kind of played that, like, get them down low enough to where now, if you have your Gates set up, you're basically threatening a kill every turn. So they can't, in turn, put pressure back on you without feeling awesome. like they're going to fall behind the get eight ball. To be honest with you, it felt powerful, but it was like one of those things that by the end of it, it was like the whole time I was playing it was basically because we said we would work on it, and I couldn't think of any legitimate reason to play it over the mono red kiln decks. That's kind of where I ended up on the, the heroic deck myself, and that's why I just pivoted into a different deck entirely. Like, I love Swift Spear decks, and I'm still playing Swift Spear and Boros, but like... I, I, I couldn't convince myself for a reason to have to play 10th District Legionnaire. <laughs> as yeah. much as I love that card in other formats, like I love that card in Pioneer, but mm -hmm. I, it just doesn't have the same kind of punch that it does in those formats here. I definitely felt like there was value in it. Like I said, that mid-game, like getting the scry is powerful, yep. but it's not more powerful than just having another threat that's going to be threatening to kill your opponent every turn. Which is kind of what Killing Fiend and Festival Crasher do. Yeah, those other decks, do. you know. That's kind of where I ended up. Obviously, I played some of the white-red like value piles, which I'll talk about a little bit more in depth <laughs> later on. So the, the thing, the trap we both fell into, we forgot the pivotal rule of aggressive magic. There is mm -hmm. no substitute for the virtual card advantage of killing your opponent while they have seven cards in hand. <laughs> yep. That's a... Uh, Especially, you know, like, I don't know if you've been seeing this. It feels like outside of the, like, hyper-aggressive decks, like Mono Red and Pauper right now, and Elves too. And Pauper right now, it's like, you just never run out of cards. Yeah. Maybe I'm simplifying things, right? Because, like, I know the, like, 
rampy cascade decks technically run out of cards but like all of their cards draw on other cards so it's like if they have two cards in hand they could be drawing cards yeah exactly (laughs) or like their cards like cascade so like obviously there are some decks that like run out of cards in hand but they still don't run out of like cards to do stuff with and even you know burn is getting pretty good at not running out of cards because you know it has blood tokens so Maybe it is running out of cards, but it still has productive things to do with its mana. It, it gives you something to... I lovingly refer to it as flood insurance. Yeah, and so when the format is definitely centered towards that, it definitely behooves you to play those like go-under decks where, like you said, you kill your opponent with seven cards in hand because they're always going to have seven cards in hand. Yeah, and that is a very nice segue into our main topic. <laughs> that it is. So our main topic this week is you and I kind of both made two separate top five lists of our totally subjective offer power ranking. I think we might have had slightly different methodologies when coming up with our lists. So if you want to go into kind of what your methodology was for your list and then give us your uh, number five bit. So mine was I wanted I, I looked at primarily challenges and leagues and I wanted to see what I kept seeing doing really well the most consistently. You know, the decks that were near the top, to me, even if they weren't high in number of, number of people playing them, they keep showing up in the top, whether it's in mm-hmm. five O's in leagues or, you know, in the top eight, top four in challenges. Right. Uh, I wanted to focus on those because whether they're the most played or not doesn't really matter if they're consistently just winning the things. Uh, my number five on my list was, and this is a really general category, but uh, there's one deck that keep, that keeps showing up in this category. So I wanted to put it on here to encourage maybe some prospective brewers out there to really, you know, flex muscles that they have it in a little while. And that is decks that are hard to sideboard for. And the example I use here is Boggles. Right. Because all of your sideboard cards that you have for Affinity and all of your sideboard cards that you have for stuff like uh, your, your small low to the ground creature decks that, you know, your sweep, your small sweepers and your pyroblasts, and your, you know, that stuff doesn't do anything to Boggles. They don't care about that. They don't care yeah. how many, they don't care how many Galvanic Blasts you have. yeah you know it's funny when i saw on your list that you had kind of put it's almost like a cheeky thing but decks that are hard to sideboard for there was a distinctly different one that came into mind and if you saw what i was doing i was actually just looking up to see if i could pull up the most recent like placing for it and it was actually in this past weekend's challenge came to my mind was goblins that's another good one it's just you you don't have enough removal in your deck. There is no scenario where you have enough removal in your deck to keep up with goblins. Yeah, well, it's not just that. It's also they have that, you know, they have like the backdoor combo train that their entire deck can kind of play around where, you know, they're going to make infinite mana pretty quickly and then find a way to cycle through their deck and beat you from there. <laughs> 
you know, it's well, if um, I can't kill you with one goblin, I'm going to kill you with 40. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they have multiple plans of attack, but even whenever you're sideboarding in mass removal, like a fiery cannonade arms of Hadir, I believe is what that card's called the black one-sided wrath, the way that their combo functions means that they can effectively just do it again a turn yeah. later. <laughs> uh, assuming that they play their cards right. And so that deck, to me, is like one of those sneaky ones that if you thought that a top five deck was just the category decks that are hard to sideboard for, you would have to have a really good reason for me to not pick that one. Yeah. Another one that kind of goes into my head along these lines, it's less good against like the blue decks, but it's a little bit better against the other stuff, and that is the Songs of the Damned combo deck. Yeah, I tried playing that deck for a little bit and didn't really get it. Um, it's it is a deck that's hard to sideboard for. It used to not be. It used to play Crypt Incursions, main deck and popper. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely the, the good old days. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely um, hard to sideboard for. Um, of course, like you can bring in relics and stuff, but really, that's right. not enough against that deck. No, it'll just fight through it. I'll make you pop one and then continue to go off again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but it is a deck with a very high skill threshold yes. of like Songs of the Damned in the best Songs of the Damned players' hands. It's much more scary than yes. Songs of the Damned in my hands. It's yeah. it's one of those decks that rewards your knowledge of the deck and how to play it way more than it does its positioning in the metagame. Like it, yeah. it doesn't almost doesn't matter how it's positioned in the metagame if you know how to play it really, really well. Mm-hmm. It's also one of those things that it fluctuates in popularity, but I feel like it's one of the few decks in Popper that most Popper players don't have actual experience playing. Where I feel like a lot of longtime Popper players will have experience playing fairies and boggles yep. and mono green and elves, but almost nobody has experience playing that deck. Yep. So they never really know what that deck is capable of. And that's they actually never... the whole reason that I even tried to play it once upon a time, was just so I could see. What can the stat do? Yeah, That's kind of my all-encompassing decks that are hard to sideboard for. You do this one thing that is really powerful and requires your opponent to have very, very specific types of answers that when you look around the format are not being played very heavily. Mm -hmm. So you're just, you're a, you're a surgical tool that hits them like a blunt instrument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so, that was... You're uh... number five. Yeah, so first of all, um, the methodology of my list is I would like to think it's like a subjectively objective list where it's like, oh, I looked at like challenge data. I listened to what some of the best players were saying, um, that sort of thing. And there's definitely some of that in my list, but also a lot of it is just feelings. We, so we you're actually, the college football playoff committee? Maybe. That's exactly um, what I just heard. <laughs> yeah, well, we um, we actually talked about in the Discord server, and I think we're actually going to do an episode on it probably yeah. next week, of eliminating your biases and magic. And a lot of that comes whenever you analyze a metagame, right? Like, how do you eliminate your bias for that? But then that kind of got me into deeper discussions with some friends about why eliminate your bias, you know? Um, Obviously, you can't be so biased to the point that you can't be like reasoned with or worked with in Magic because you can never play enough games or 
have a high enough skill level to be better than the person that has 30 people that they work with. But in the short term, those heuristics can be very effective. And they can also be a really good way to navigate a specific format. And so while my list did try and analyze um, challenge results and talking to players that I feel are very strong players, there is a lot of, hey, like my gut kind of says that, you know, maybe if there are two decks that I think could have been in the fifth spot, my gut was really the thing that kind of drove me to go, okay, this is why this is my number five. And this is why I think my number four is better than my number five and that sort of deal. So it's probably a little bit less analytical than is ideal, but I'm fine with that. All that being said, my number five is Blue-Red Fairies. Blue-Red Fairies kind of doesn't need an introduction. Whenever I, was think <laughs> whenever I was thinking of the build of this deck that I think is the fifth best deck in Popper, you'll see all of the other lists like the other top four decks, I kind of feel that there is a more correct way to build it yeah. than others. Fairies, particularly the blue-red version, is the only one that I didn't feel that way. Um, it's a deck that I have in paper, and there's um, a local popper tournament coming up that I've been preparing with with a friend of mine. And he was like, he really likes the Fairies deck, so he's going to play it. And he was like, so what 75 should I register? And I was like, well... This is like 50 cards in your main deck, but you can kind of just pick 10 more. That is both the strength of fairies, is that you can kind of prepare for any metagame by playing a lot of fire ices, a lot of abrades, um, more threats, eight ninjas, six ninjas, four ninjas, um, four extra fairies and fairy miscreant. Like you can just build it in a bunch of different ways. Yeah. And I think that that's the strength of it, but it's also sort of what holds the deck back because it means that you can get those more metagame choices wrong. Or you can do what a lot of players do and kind of split the difference by playing like one of every um, meta call and then hoping that your card selection gets you there. And a lot of times it does, but sometimes it doesn't. So it was hard to put it above the number five for me. You start drawing all your electricries against a deck with a bunch of fat butts on it and you just feel really silly in that game. <laughs> mm -hmm. Ask me how I know. <laughs> I'll uh, save you the trouble. Okay. It's yeah. appreciated. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so that was uh, my number five. If you want to go ahead and get into your number four. So my number four is the deck that I would give the distinction. We've talked about it before on here of having the best long game in the format. And that is the ephemerate decks, whether it's blue, white, or Jeskai. You know, in a format where everybody always has seven cards, they always have seven cards, and most of them are better than yours once you get past a certain point. You know, whether it's going all the way up to something like Stonehorn Dignitary and just cutting off an entire line of ability to win the game out from under you, or if you just keep it relatively simple and value them to death with Maul Drifters and Priest of Ancient Lores and so on and so forth, and just bury them under the fact that all their one-for-one -one removal is not good. It doesn't really matter. that It just it can out-resource just about anybody. Yeah, you know, the, um, the familiars, or sorry, ephemerate decks are they're also weird because they 
they function like a ramp deck in that they generate way more mana than you do. But unlike the ramp decks in Popper, um, most of the ramp decks in Popper, they play a lot of their cards every turn. So, you know, they're, they're going to be snapping your stuff, snapping their own stuff back to play it again, generating an extra mana off of that. They're going to be drawing four cards over the course of a turn with Mole Drifter. Um, just the sheer amount of stuff that they get to do, especially with cost reducers like Sunscape Familiar, as well as Snap to untap their bounce lines and stuff. Kind of, it makes those decks very scary. Um, and it also, again, just kind of following the theme of what I feel is um, strong about goblins. Um, same thing with the Ephemerate decks, is they're kind of innocuous, where it's like, it, unless you've played the decks a fair bit or played against them a fair bit, you kind of don't know when they could start winning. And especially from them, it can just seemingly come out of nowhere. They think you've got shields down, and then they just start deploying things, and all of a sudden they've gained a bunch of life, they've got a full grip of cards again, and you can't win the game anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then especially, like, blue-white is one thing, and then Jeskai, your favorite color combination, mm -hmm. also gets to take advantage of actual inevitability in the form of uh, Ghostly Flicker Archeomancer loops. Oh, so, yeah. They can like buy back lightning bolts if they get two of them going. <laughs> yeah, and you know something that the uh, Just Guy decks have over the blue white ones, right? Is they can also play like Cleansing Wildfire, and you know if they're going that route, they might be able to fit in like better removal and Galvanic Blast. There's a um, there's a lot of different ways to build the Ephemerate decks, and honestly, it's like a it's like a nice segue into my number four, because my number four was just straight blue white familiars. <laughs> um, so we're we're kind of aligned on the number four. Oh, I would yeah. say the thing that um, puts blue white over the other ephemerate list to me is just how streamlined it is. Um, so you know it's a deck. It obviously has way more redundancy than the you know Jeskai versions do, or like the um, blue white splash black versions do because it plays more copies of every card and it feels like that list is super honed in um, specifically with the modern age and um, other cards and for me that's kind of why it took that number four spot is and like isn't equal with the other ephemerate decks it's just because of how honed in those lists are whereas if we were having this discussion two months ago it kind of felt like how I felt about fairies, where there was always like slightly different blue-white lists running around. That makes sense. I can agree mm -hmm. with that. You want to go ahead and jump right into your number three? So my number three is the Boros value piles, which I know you're going to get to. <laughs> <laughs> we only did it once this time, okay? <laughs> right. Yeah. If you want to talk about why you have them at number three, they're... Just a little bit higher on my list, so I'll save my comments for them. But fair enough. Uh, the reason I have them in number three is because I kind of lumped all of my fairies decks together above them, mm -hmm. and there's you know there because the fairies deck is a little bit more ubiquitous because I see it consistently in higher numbers at higher finishes, and because just kind of a gut feeling from playing with both decks. 
Like it is way easier to fall into a situation as the Boros player against the Fairies decks where you feel hopeless, where you feel like you don't have a way out of your games than it mm-hmm. is on the other side of the table. But I love them against our our unanimous number one. So, you know, they're they're high enough on the list. They keep showing up even when we both are kind of like, I don't know how I feel about them. They keep showing up. They keep winning things. They keep topping. They keep getting treasure chests all over the place. It's just like the deck is still really, really good because, again, like the Ephemerate decks, you just out-resource people. Yep. You just I, have I You just have the capacity where your late game, instead of being... I'm going to continue to out-resource you until everybody's out of gas. It's I'm going to out-resource you until I can punch you in the mouth. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I don't think you and I have any disagreements about how good white-red is, particularly against the top wins of the metagame. My number three was blue-black fey. I think that blue-black fairies is the premier control deck in Popper, and I'm not sure it's particularly close. Some people might actually call it like like aggro control where it like kind of plays that control role until it doesn't. Um, but I think it's a pretty squarely control deck. You know, it plays most of the best removal in Popper except for lightning bolt. It has arguably, honestly, the best removal spell and snuff out, but then also all of its threats are incredibly cheap, right? Like it gets to play that fairies package alongside the ninja, but the lists are pretty settled that they only need four ninja and then, you know, they're going to play Thorn of the Black Rose as their other card advantage engine. And then, you know, one or two Gurmag Anglers to really set a clock on your opponent. And just how streamlined that list is of having multiple ways to generate card advantage, unlike the blue-red version, which relies heavily on ninjas. Also, that super quick way to end the game in Gurmag Angler, which I feel is, it's really what you have to do to be a control deck yeah. in Popper. You know, um, you and I have been talking about spoilers, playing like blue, red, X control decks. And something that I've been thinking about is you kind of need to have at least one or two ways to just end games quickly. Because Gone and Popper, and it's been like this for a while, are the days of just not really having an onboard win condition. And it kind of goes back to all the decks have so many cards that you're never going to be in a situation or you're very rarely going to be in a situation where you have six cards and your opponent has none and all of your cards are good and all their cards are just going to be countered by your stuff forever. Those decks are pretty much dead because everybody has so many cards all the time. So you kind of need to find a way to close that gap fairly quickly. And I think Gurmag English is the best way to do that. I'm not sure that there's too much difference between White Red and Blue Black Fairies. I would but, agree but I think Blue Black Fairies is just a little bit worse, which kind of brings us to both of our number twos, which mine obviously was the white red value piles if you wanted to get into what your number two was. So my number two was kind of the all encompassing blue X fairies because to me they're they're similar core packages with different spice. Mm-hmm. You know, Mono Blue plays more of the sort of classic aggro control style where you have to get on the board in order to get ahead. You know, you gotta get that you gotta get that ball rolling or it's never gonna start. Mm-hmm. But then you transition to 
blue-red, and you are a little bit better at the control aspect of the of the aggro control. And then, of course, you go into blue-black, and you are basically a control deck that can sometimes cheese out a threat and just put your opponent on the back foot. But mm-hmm. at their core, this may be, going back to what we were talking about earlier, a little bit more of my biases coming to bear here. There's a There's a sense of, like, these decks very rarely draw the wrong half of themselves. So like the, the overall blueness, the, you know, even if your cards aren't as good as your opponents, you can stop just enough of your, you never have to take full control of the game. You just have to make sure the most important things don't happen. And that's, I think something that gets lost a lot in translation when you start talking about blue decks is because there's a lot of people that, you know, you hear the words blue decking, you're like, oh, well, you're just going to counter everything and just get something in under that. You counter everything else, you know, whatever happens, happens. But no, that's not always how it goes. Sometimes we just got to let some stuff go and we get into a race and it's just like, it's so nebulous. It can play so many different games so through so many different board states, you know, between the cheeky evasion, the, uh, the, litany of different lists you can come across like so for me it's it's one cohesive archetype that just has a lot of variation within it and for that reason because it's so populous because it's sort of one of the pillars it's always been one of the pillars of the format yeah if you go look on um mpg goldfish i know it's not the most reliable data in the world but it's what we have all together fairies makes up like 24.7 percent or something like that, of the Puffer Meta game right now. Um, so, when, like, obviously, all across the three different flavors of it, it is pretty um, nebulous, to say the least. But yeah, and then that kind of leads us to both of our number ones, which... Um, We're going to make I, Patrick Sullivan so happy today. <laughs> right. Um <laughs> Number one for both of us is Mono Red Kiln Fiend or Hot Dogs or Burn with Manamorphos. I just uh, call it Blitz. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's another name, Blitz. You know, it plays the 12 creature package, Monastery Swift Spear, Festival Crasher, Kiln Fiend, and then a bunch of really good spells, you know, uh, Lightning Bolt, Manamorphos, Reckless Impulse, Mutagenic Growth. Apostle's Blessing, Lava Dart, Humor Battle Rage. Basically, like, it's just a very streamlined, very aggressive list that's going to kill you on turn three unless you interact with it. And then if you interact with it, it's going to try and kill you on turn four. If you interact with it again, it's going to use its reckless impulses to generate some card advantage and try again on turn six. And, I mean, there's no rule that says you can't play Fire Blast in this deck. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, Yeah, I think there is a rule that says that. What? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I don't think you should because I don't want you to. I don't want to be on the other end of that. <laughs> Obviously, personal biases aside, which yeah. I love this deck, yeah. but whenever you just look at the challenge results and you see it's like some challenges it completely dominates and then other challenges it seems like it's players are more prepared for it and it still finds a way to get a couple of top 16s and a top eight pretty much all of the good players that i respect that i've talked to think this is one of the best decks and uh i i concur i think it's uh the best deck maybe not by as much as i thought 
you know, a week ago. But it's the, it's the best deck by at least a medium-sized margin. It's also worth pointing out that even prior to Swift Spear being in the format, there were quite a bit of challenges and leagues where I was seeing just burn mm-hmm. up near the top of them. You know, leagues are putting out five O's, uh, challenge top eights and top sixteens with mono red or even red black burn yep. without Swift. You know, before we got Swift Spear, some of them weren't playing Kiln Fiend. So, like, just these really streamlined, aggressive red decks. It kind of falls into that category of decks that are hard to sideboard for because they attack a resource that Pauper does not generally like to worry about protecting. Yeah. If if I uh, were players, I'd start investing in Weather the Storm. Yes. You know, now that we've kind of gone through both of our top five lists, you know, I do just want to throw this out there. I don't know how you've been feeling about it. But playing Pauper the past couple of weeks has been great, man. Like, format feels super healthy. Affinity yes. still feels strong, but with these aggro decks, you know, it feels like it's kind of oppressing it. And yep. then the, like, high removal decks are kind of seeing a resurgence because of Kiln Fiend. And that leaves the way for these more, like, tier two and a half decks, like Elves. There's just a lot of stuff you can do in Pauper right now. The Gates packages are super cool. I'm happy to see them. <laughs> tried out pretty much everywhere yeah i've been having a lot of fun with the format it feels like it's in a really healthy place yeah it does i guess that takes us to what we're going to be working on for august yeah i guess it does uh, do you want to unveil the uh not so secret secret it's, it's the oh what was it it's it's a doctor who promo thing again where we found out john sim was going to be back as the master anyway <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about blue red x controlled x and one of them that i'm with you on one of them that i really want to work on is iterations on serpentine Group. yeah yeah um generally you know like blue red control decks we kind of were talking about and then we kind of narrowed in serpentine curve is a deck that i'm a big fan of you're a big fan of and there's like three or four different ways to build it so i think you've been working on a particular version and then after i read your version i had a slightly different take on it i don't know if you're ready to unveil what you've been working on yet it's like a sneak peek but wow uh. Uh, let's just say it's going to make one very particular listener who tweeted at me a while back very happy if I get it right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, next week, whenever you kind of go over what you've been working on a little bit more in depth, I'll kind of reveal where I'm at with a really similar but play super different list. But yeah, I guess that's going to do it for this episode of Common Knowledge. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find me on Twitter at JustGuyDad. Adam, where can they find you? At HomewardPathMTG. And on TikTok, you can find, get to know me behind the mic at uh, HomewardPathGaming. If you have any questions on the proper format, MTGO, or anything else, you can leave a comment down below or reach out to us on our socials. You can also shoot us a quick email over at commonknowledgemtg at gmail.com. 
I want to give a quick thank you again to our sponsors, GameGrid, as well as PureMTGO.com, as well as the Constructive Criticism Network for letting us be a part of it. And last, but certainly not least, thank you for listening. Take very good care of each other. And never stop brewing. Mm-hmm.